Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is part two with the legendary producer-engineer Terry Manning. First of all, TikTok is really exploding, and it's exploding with younger users. Actually, there's more Gen Z users using TikTok than Instagram right now, and pretty soon Snapchat as well. So, there are 37, almost 38 million monthly Gen Z users. What's a Gen Z user? Well, that's anyone that's born between 1997 and 2012. Instagram only has about 33 million in that category. Now, the fact of the matter is the Instagram user base is aging with the fastest growing area between 35 and 44. And it's not growing very much between teens and young adults. So... Instagram isn't as hot as it used to be. You know what? The same thing is going to happen to TikTok as well. Remember, MySpace used to be the big dog, and then Facebook was really hot, and then YouTube was hot, and just about every major platform was hot. And sooner or later, it cools off when something new comes out. Now, one of the things we're starting to see is every major platform is coming out with their own version of TikTok right now. And the fact that TikTok is also manipulating the stars on its platform, in other words, it's looking at who's the most professional and then it's promoting them. So it turns out that TikTok is not as democratic as everyone has always thought. In fact, there's a lot of manipulation going on behind the scenes. And as a result, there are some people that are kind of disgruntled with it and are looking for other alternatives. And now we're seeing Facebook and YouTube and Instagram providing that alternative. So it should be interesting to see next year at this time if TikTok is quite as hot as it is right now. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, we all love music, and it turns out that that's pretty much inbred from birth. Now, of course, as we grow older, some of us learn to love it more than others, but we all have an inherent love for tonality, for rhythm, for music. And as a result, music is universal. But what makes it so? There's been some studies, and there's one study in particular that looks at 86 different societies and found out there's only four types of songs. There are love songs, lullabies, healing songs, and dance songs. And that's it. And how they know the universal? Well, it doesn't matter whether you speak the language or from a particular society. If you play a song, you can identify which one of the four types it is. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have hybrids of these songs. Crossover songs are kind of the norm as well. So a healing song might also serve as a dance song. And a dance song could be a love song as well. doesn't matter. We can take that yet another step and we know this for a fact, music evokes different emotions. But most music does have the same 32 specific features, of which 18 are fairly widely shared. So pitch and rhythm, and 
phrasing, instrumentation, performance, style, social context, all those things. That being said, there's a universal tendency to sing and to play percussion instruments and to dance to simple repetitive music in groups. When it comes down to it, what is music for? Turns out it's evolved specifically for social bonding. So the next time you listen to a love song that you think is kind of inane, there's a real reason for it. It's part of evolution. My guest this week again is Terry Manning, who's had a successful career as a record producer, audio engineer, photographer, composer, singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and visual artist. Over his career, Terry has worked on some huge hits with Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top, Otis Redding, Joe Walsh, Shania Twain, Al Green, Lenny Kravitz, and many, many more. He's also worked as a photojournalist for New Music Express and has photographed Chuck Berry, Procol Harum, Jimi Hendrix, Dusty Springfield, as well as capturing Martin Luther King Jr. on film the day before his assassination. In part two of our interview, we spoke about the inside story and the making of ZZ Top's biggest hits, his time at the legendary Compass Point studio, his photography career, being an audio gear manufacturer, and much more. I spoke with Terry via Zoom from his home in Texas. Well, you've had a lot of history around you, that's for sure. And one place I want to go with you is CZ Top. And I know you've done a bunch of albums with them. And the interesting thing for me, and I'm not quite clear on this, so maybe you can clear it up. So here we go with the blues band that's really successful and maybe one of the best in the world at what they did. And they're strict blues. And then all of a sudden they're, I I don't want to say electronic (laughs) for want of a better word, but really that's what they were. Yeah, yeah. So what what happened with the Eliminator? And, and then you did so much of that in your own, right? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I can say some of this now when I never would have said it publicly before. But since that net, the, the documentary that's come out, that's, I believe, still on Netflix, for those who haven't seen it, ZZ Top, The Little Old Band from Texas, great documentary not because I'm in it a little bit, but because of the band and the great production and direction that they, the filmmakers did. But uh, the stories have come out in that documentary now that I would have never told myself. One of the ones being that uh, two members of the band became involved in drinking a lot and drugs, uh, different things for different members. And, the album we did before Eliminator, where they were all still playing and doing our old way of three, a three-piece band recording, it, we really went through some problems, had a lot of tough times and had a lot of editing and things to try to... And Billy kept coming to me and saying, I go to discos and I hear everything on beat and people are dancing to it. If our music comes on, it's still good for what it is, but they sit down, they stop dancing, the beats aren't there we're getting offbeat. I'm having trouble controlling the rhythm section here. What do we do? And so we did our best on the album before, but leading up to Eliminator, Billy said to me, look, I go to these discos in Europe and they're playing Rolling Stones and they're playing this and they're playing that, but they're not playing ZZ Top. Why can't people dance to it? You got to do something about our rhythm. 
So I just said, okay, you asked for it. We'll fix the rhythm. All right. So, uh, it's a long, long story that would have to be written in a full book, I guess, about how we got there. But we ended up with just me and Billy in the studio and drum machines, samplers, synthesizers, Moogs, uh, different things. Uh, and Billy would play, of course, the guitar, some of the bass. I played some of the bass. He'd play the keyboards. I'd play some of the keyboards. We'd do whatever it took. And we'd... We start out, he, I, I actually went to disco clubs, which I would never have done on my own, to see what he's talking about. And I took a stopwatch and I would time things and see what makes people dance. And then I would, of course, note the, the good now gold standard 120 beats per minute, which uh, every machine now defaults to as the basic hit, set, hit tempo. But I didn't know that before that. And I would time it and I'd go, oh, this one was 120. Oh, this was 124. Oh, a slow one is 100, but they still, okay, I would just figure it all out. So when we started doing the album, I actually sequenced it and programmed it according to beats. Started at 120, next song at 122, next song at 123, next song at 124, whatever, like you would on stage to build, build, build. And, uh, so we had just completely changed everything. And I know there were ZZ fans that were just heartbroken. Where's the old blues? Where's sure got cold after the rain fell or Francine or Brown sugar. This is, what are you doing? But we tried to inject, of course, you can't take the ZZ out of ZZ top with Billy Gibbons there. He's going to play what he plays. Beautiful. The greatest blues and slide and all that great blues guitar. He does of anyone. So that was injected. His voice is going to be rough and gruff and, uh, and Dusty sang a song too, of course, as we always did. So you couldn't take all that out. And I tried really hard to meld together the best of what was becoming disco or dance rhythms and the best of their blues rock past the pedigree that came up and sort of put them together. I don't know if that succeeded but it certainly changed their sales from lucky if we go gold or platinum to 15 to 20 million and then on from there. But it also ended up changing everyone. <laughs> the more success you have, the more everyone changes, which I won't get into, but does that explain sort of the story in a, in a general way? Yeah. 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 But you had a studio right in your attic and you did a lot of that up there by yourself, right? Well, for instance, Legs, we had tried to do it in Ardent Studio, where we were recording originally, uh, and just couldn't, never got it done. So I just took the thing home, and I would go in at night or when they were off to do something else and we weren't in session, I would just go in by myself. I had a 24-track Soundcraft machine. I had, a, had the big uh, 1600 Soundcraft board with Patch Bay. I had AMX... Uh, AMS, uh, DMX machines and things like that. Uh, and I, I had good stuff, good re lexicon reverbs and good stuff at home. So I would just go in and start it from scratch and I would program the drums and then I would overdub some cymbal crashes or a tom roll or whatever. I would play the bass on a bass and I would double it on the Moog and uh, then put sequence Moog in and do all these different things. Then I went to our original 
attempt we did tried at Arden, I took Billy's vocal off of there and flew it in phrase by phrase because it was a little off. It wouldn't sync up perfectly, but I could take a phrase. I'm talking about legs in particular. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, she's got a leg, knows how to use them yeah. that much. Then I'd sync it up again and do it on the fly, watching watching the piece of tape that I had, splicing tape to, to cue me. Hit it now. Oh, I missed it. Hit it now. Oh, too late. It, ah, perfect. I got another phrase. This phrase in over and over and over. And then the same for his lead guitar. <laughs> wow. How long did that take? Oh, it, to do legs alone, it probably took me two months. I bet. Oh. I'm flying the stuff in like that. And I would overdub uh, all these different, I had th these, uh, what was the Yamaha synth? The big oh, DX7? Yeah, the DX7 and DX9. I had some of those and I would get the angel voices off and fly, play that in. And I was I didn't have a real sequencer at the time. I had the memory Moog which had uh, some kind of weird step sequencing in it. And it didn't have enough memory to do the whole song. So it actually lock a key down on E with the cassette box <laughs> and lock it down there and do that much. And then anyway, it was just nuts wow. how it all got done, but it works. It was such a huge, massive platinum hit. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. You'd never know. I mean, you never no, know. no. Uh, <laughs> Wow. Okay. The, the band never knew <laughs> until it came out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Compass Point. So how did that come about? That's another big change. I know. I've, I've always worked years and years. I worked 18 years with CZ Top in Memphis, almost exclusively. Uh, but after years at Stax and years with Arden, of course, Stax closed. And uh, all the different things I had done, I was really... In a crazy way, I was thinking, I am sick of winter here in Memphis. And I know it's not that bad. It's not the Northeast. It's not Canadian North, Northwest Territory winters or anything like that. But it still would snow and it'd be cold. And, and I'd say, I really want to get away for a while and just enjoy it. And I, my friend Chris Blackwell that I had worked with years and years earlier that owned Island Records owned Compass Point Studios. And so I spoke to Chris's assistant, Holly Ferguson, and I said, look, what's going on with Compass Point? I had, I'd like to check it out. It's on an island. It's, I tried to put a, my studio on Cayman Islands, but ran into so much red tape with the government, it just never worked. So I said, okay, second choice, Chris's place, Compass Point. So I, I flew down there. I'm, I'm a pilot. I had my plane. I flew my own plane down there and went in and set up a meeting with Chris it was in terrible shape, falling in disrepair. Uh, it, there had been some leakage from a flood, and there was things, old magazines in rooms where it had rotted down from the water. Just, oh, it was a mess. But the, the general bones of it were fantastic. The rooms were, the big room especially, the A room, probably the best room I've ever worked in anywhere and a lot of good ones but it really had an amazing sound for instance slight detour i always want, wanted to get the the snare sound on addicted to love yeah what yeah. does that sound and i'd try this and i'd add that and this reverb and whatever gate this and and then finally went into compass point a and hit a snare drum and oh here it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> but wow. uh he had tony palmer and put it in that room but uh 
I met with Chris. We talked it through. He said uh, he was thinking of closing it down, but hated to do it because he loved it so much. The history was phenomenal. Later on, I, I made our motto, the greatest studio in the greatest studio in the world without Abby in its name. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, <laughs> I took it over, uh, went in partners with Chris and uh, brought in all my equipment from my studios. I had already put in my own studios in Memphis for a few years, brought in all that equipment, bought a lot of new equipment, used a little of the equipment they still had there, an SSL desk and a Neve desk that were there, thankfully. They needed to be fully recapped and redone and everything, but uh, totally redid it, and it was just gorgeous and got our sessions going, and it was the good old days for Compass Point again. Jimmy Buffett, R.E.M., Mariah Carey, Julio Iglesias, Lenny Kravitz, I mean, just and I, hundreds more. I couldn't even begin to say the acts we had in there. It was just fantastic. And you can't ask for a better place to be, except during hurricanes, but other than that. Yeah, yeah, during hurricanes. And uh, I'm very glad to have left there now, I'll tell you that. Because socioeconomically, it's it's not the greatest place in the world necessarily to as a foreigner to have a business. There's some things that went on later, at few, at 20 years, 20-some years into my stay there that really soured me on it, so we left. But um, um, it was fantastic. Uh, if you just ignored a lot of the stuff that was going on, our clients would see it as a holiday. They'd come in to go to the beach in the morning and the studio all afternoon and night. Yeah, Can't beat that. You're right. You can't beat it for that kind of thing. I know you're an avid uh, photographer. So tell me about that. <laughs> that's it, It's hard to believe this maybe to some people, but that's easily as big a part of my life as is music. Uh, at the same time I was getting started in music uh, professionally in Memphis in the 60s, I was also getting started professionally in photography. And I ran across, it was very fortunate that at Ardent Studio, John Fry was quite the photographer, had a Hasselblad and some other great cameras himself. A guy named Sid Selvage locally, he was a tremendous vocalist and writer was also a great photography <laughs> photographer chris bell had sort of a big star sort of saw it all happening and got into it and got very good and a friend of all of us of those people that really was the lead photographer of our little cadre of goofballs was a guy named william eggleston hmm. who we didn't know it at the time would become the father of modern modern art color photography. I mean, he's as big as it gets in, yeah. in color photography. But he was one of my best friends. So at the time, we were sharing dark rooms, and he'd call me up. I've run out of deck tall. Do you have any? Said, yeah, I'll run it over, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I'd go out and shoot while he was going out and shooting together sometimes, apart sometimes, mostly black and white in the early days, and then mor morphing into color as time went on. So really... It was just there. It was part of, I was so lucky to be around great musicians, great engineers, great songwriters. And I was there in the middle of it going, wow, and soaking it all up. And there I am in the middle of this group of photographers led by William Eggleston going, wow, and soaking that all up. 
So uh, I did that professionally for a good bit and the music, but music started paying better. And once you get in a hit and they pay you more to do something and you've got to pay rent and all that sort of stuff, you go to that. But for quite a while, I worked for uh, magazines and newspapers like the NME in England, New Musical Express. I did articles, uh, photojournalists for them, shooting photos and writing articles for them. Uh, did a couple of things for Time and other, uh, other magazines and, and things. A lot of album cover work. Bands would call me, hey, that knew me already through music. Hey, can you come take the band photos of us? So I would do that and the box tops, the gentries some of the big local acts. So it just, it was just part of my life as I got deeper into music and it became the main focus of my life. I never stopped taking the photos I wanted to take for me, not as, not as a business, not being hired to take it or whatever, but just what they call art photos, just the, the things you see and like and want to capture and, and hold. So I would keep taking those, and I have thousands upon thousands of those, black and white, color, film, digital, you name it. It's large format, small format, all the way from Minox to 6x9, whatever. I've got all of it there. So uh, one of the things that I did, I always had a camera with me, almost never in the studio, though, because that, that messes with my head. I can't think visually and orally mm. at the same time. Yeah. So, but I would go out to do something. I would always have a camera with me. One day I went out to pick up a monk with other people, not me as the prime person in it, but to be part of a group of cars that was picking up Dr. Martin Luther King and his group from the airport on April the 3rd, 1968, the day before the assassination. So I went to the airport and picked him up. And while I'm walking down the hall with the whole group of some Stax people and, and his whole group, Jesse Jackson, uh, Ralph uh, Abernathy, uh, several people in the whole, whole civil rights movement group, I just said, hey, I've got my camera. So I took 13 photos of Dr. King as we went down the hall. And one of those got seen that kept him in a box for years. I felt funny every, because the assassination was just hours away. Yeah. And when that happened, I went, oh, this is freaky. Because I also went to that speech that night with some of the Stacks people at the, uh, the, uh, whatever, the, the temple. I forget the name of the, the place that uh, he had the speech. Yeah. yeah. Big church thing and lightning flashing outdoors and skylights with the light coming through and Dr. King speaking. It was, it's transformative. I mean, wow. That was the speech of... Uh, I'll, I may not get there with you, but we'll get to the mountaintop thing. Yeah, and I, would, yeah. I was standing right under him watching this and just going, wow, how is this happening to me? Why am I here? But I, the next day he's dead and I put the photos away and wouldn't even look at them for years and years, decades. Finally, I had one of them out and somebody saw it and mentioned it, a photo I had taken of Dusty Springfield with Tom Dowd as she was recording the Dusty and Memphis album, a son of a preacher man song. And uh, I took s several photos of her, in fact, on assignment from NME as a photojournalist to document the session, except that Tom Dowd ended up getting me to help him move some mics and headphones and stuff. But uh, 
I had a really good one of Dusty and Tom. It's now in the Library of Congress. It's become very well known. It got out to a magazine. So I'm sorry, these long answers. But a, uh, a friend of mine in Boston, Chris Klepper, who was at MIT, was the head of their photo lab, saw this. And he, it was in Mojo Magazine, several other places. And he said, these are, these are great. How many more have you got? I said, well, I don't know, 10 or 20,000. <laughs> well, wow. What? What are you doing with them? I said, well, nothing because I'm busy doing music. So he kept calling me up once a year and saying, get those out, edit them, print them. I will do an exhibit for you. And finally, the last time he called about it, he said, well, I guess you're not doing it, not ever going to have your photo exhibit. I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he said, well, you've never done it. You've gone on to the next recording thing and just ignored this photography. So see you later. I said, wait, Chris, wait. So I just said, okay. This was 2013. So I just said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stop some of the music. I'll do some time for myself. And I got out all the boxes of negatives and files on the uh, computer and everything and went through them, collated and chose a show. And he put it on in, at the Boston Cyber Arts Gallery in August of 2013. And that started, it was seen by a, a lot of people and got requests for more shows. Providence, Rhode Island, two in Memphis, here, there, all over the place. So I've just did a lot of exhibits in museums and galleries since then. Had two books printed of photos. And uh, it just, thankfully to me, rose in my mind to the level of my music stuff, mm. of what I got to do with my life. So uh, we now I've stopped. Of course, COVID came along. Pandemic shut everything down. So uh, just before that, I'd stopped all exhibits and uh, a guy named Chuck Toller, who was also a music manager, a band manager, yeah. Cheap Trick and a lot of other big bands, uh, is, is handling, in a way, my photo manager as well. And he's setting up with some really big museums once we're fully open and everyone can go again. We don't have to look, worry about the 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 virus and everything, and it, we're back open. When everything's back open, I'm going to have some really good big shows. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's excellent. Excellent. I went to see your book on Cuba. Ah, yes. I went to Cuba twice and fell in love with the place. I've been twice as well, and I love it. I, I can't wait to go back ah, again. I thought, you know, in my mind, and I'm not for communism necessarily or for... Uh, totalitarianism or I'm not being political in any way. So don't yeah. anyone take it in, in, in any political way. But uh, over the years, I thought from what we're all taught, Cubans hate Cuba. Cubans can't wait to get out of there. That's why they got a few got on boats and went to Miami or did whatever. They, they hate Castro. They hate lives. They're all super poor. And that's just what I thought. And then when I finally was able to go to Cuba uh, for music things, um, I was stunned. I saw the people, and they're happy. Yeah. They love themselves. They love Cuba. People had cell phones and big TVs, and it's not super wealthy, of course. Uh, it's not up to American standards or their England, Australia, Canada, whatever standards necessarily. But it's not what I thought at all. It's yeah. much as you well know, yeah. it's a beautiful place, and the people are lovely. Yeah, I love them. They're great. They're great. Oh. And the musicians are fabulous. Oh, my God. 
I went all the way from Havana to Santiago on the far other oh. side doing music things everywhere. The musicians were spectacular. Yeah. So good. And so into what they did. I even recorded there. I, I had a trumpet, uh, trumpet overdub done by uh, the top jazz trumpeter there on a jazz album I was doing. <laughs> One of my fondest memories of anything, I can remember being in Havana and, and being in the, the square, the downtown square, I forget what they call it, but I was sitting having a, something to eat under the stars about 9 p.m. and there was a little band that was playing and they saw me and they saw that I was American and they decided that they were going to play a song for the Americano and it was a salsa version of Be My Baby by the oh, Ronettes. Oh, how great is that? And it was just so fantastic. <laughs> it, uh, you know, first of all, just the sentiment was fantastic, but it, it really sounded great as well. It was like, oh man. Yeah, and they chose this. one of the all-time great rock singles yeah. ever to do yeah that's yeah. fantastic i'll bet it was plaza de las armas that's what it was yeah yeah exactly yeah. that's a great great area yeah. loved it okay let's go to lucas engineering ah in uh 19 oh, 1990 and 91 i was recording with my two favorite compressors which are ua 176 uh, they call them limiting amplifiers, or, or he did when he built them. And I, I love them, and I use them all. I had one on the bass and one on the vocal every session, and one of them broke. And I'm going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I can't do without these UA-176s. So I spoke to this fantastic tech at the studio I was in at the time named Frank, and he, I said, Frank, Surely you can make one of these. And he looked at me like I was insane. Just make one of those? Are you crazy? Those parts aren't available anymore. Some of the things, the transformers and certain things just aren't available anymore. But what I could do, and I, he, he loved a challenge. He said, I can look at the topography of it and see what's going on and why it sounds like it sounds and what it, what it's doing. And I can, build a new one based on that as, as an influence. And I said, well, sure, try it. Let's, let's go. And he did. He bought, made the very first Lucas limiting amplifier compressor and brought it to me. I plugged it in uh, and just went, wow, I love this thing. And I, I suggested a couple of different changes for the way it would interface the certain levels where the controls would be when you were at, uh, at optimum levels and things rather than where the, he had them just specced out. And we made those changes and a couple of little things. But uh, then I said, okay, I've got to have another one. So, okay, so we built another one. Then people would come and use my studio. This was my place in Memphis called Studio 6. Uh, <clears throat> people would come and rent it. I, I, did, I let very few people in, but good friends I would let in, good engineer friends or, or whatever. They would try it and go, wow, i got to have one. So I said, okay, Frank, if you can build another one, I'll sell it. So I'd mark it up just a little bit, you know, and sell it to them and just to cover expenses and everything. Then it, that, someone else would see it. Then someone, and the next thing I knew, they're, I'm getting calls from everywhere on wanting a, a Lucas limiting amplifier. In the meantime, I had said to Frank, I want a better EQ. I want a different kind of EQ, but I want it to be tube and I want it to the tubes to actually be doing something, not just 
boosting the level at the end or something. So he took the original Western Electric EQ ideas that, that Leo Fender used in, in the early Fender basement amps and things. And the way it changed to treble was done inside the tube mm-hmm. rather than uh, uh, a passive Passively, resistor, yeah. resistor network or something and just boosting the level at the end. So he and I love that EQ and then people would want that. And next thing I knew people were ordering from the UK and we had to do two forty volt ones and oh so it just went on and on for years of that. And another product I had thought up in my head called the Deceiver, which is a one in and four out guitar control room interface. So the guitar is deceived into thinking it's going into one amp. And each output is deceived into thinking it's not seeing anywhere else. It's all buffered, isolated, so that everything goes to everything. And you had, I told him what I wanted. I want phase reverse on each each output. I want mute on each output. I want all these things to happen. And he made it. And it, it went wild. We've done over 100 of those. I didn't mean to be a, an equipment company. But then years later... <laughs> Do you have time for a story? I don't please, mean to. Please, please. Okay, years later, I had bought what I thought was going to be a really good microphone, an AKG C12 VR vintage reissue. Yeah. And I just assumed this is going to be a, a C12. And I got it, and I was so disappointed. It was nothing like a C12 to me, sound-wise. And I was lamenting this back to uh, a friend online friend, telephone friend named Oliver in Oliver Arcoot in Kansas, German guy who had worked with Telefunken and knew all about tubes and transformers. And he said, send it to me. I will make it much better. (laughs) So I did. And he made, when I got it back, it's funny. I had a session booked the day it was scheduled to be delivered by FedEx and the producer from Nashville, a very big, country artist from Nashville said, I now we need a C12. Do you have one? And I think thinking I should by then. Yeah, sure. sure. So uh, sure enough, it's delivered five minutes before session time by FedEx. I rip open the box, set it up there, plug it in for the first time. Oliver had changed the grill from that ugly gold to the original silvery gray thing and, painted the body to look just like an original. It looked like a C12, plugged it in, and they start singing. And I'm going, I'm just sweating. Like, oh, my God, I'm going to trash this poor big producer and huge artist session. About halfway through the first take, producer says, stop the tape, stop the tape. I'm thinking, uh-oh, here it comes. And I said, what is it? And he said, what year C12 is that? That's the best one I've ever heard. Wow. And I just went, okay done so i'm calling oliver back and i said well i I need more And he said no 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 i did that as a big big favor for you i can't make just one or two as a or even three or four because it costs so much to have special parts made and all this stuff to do and i said well how many would it take to really make it cost effective and he'd say a hundred i said a hundred i don't need a hundred and he said if you i said well what if i sold a hundred and uh, we did a quick price structure thing. And he said, oh, if you can sell 33, that's enough money to buy the parts 
for all hundred and you'll get your next one. So I put it online. Here's the new Lucas mic. There wasn't even one except this one made, which wasn't even a real ground up one. It was a modified one. Put a picture of it, put it online on a forum. And within two days, I call, Oliver said, now, if you get 100 orders in a year, this will be a success. Yeah. So don't, don't feel like you need to rush things. In the first day, we had more than the 33 orders. Within three days, I had 100 orders and a waiting list. And I called Oliver and he said, what's up? And I said, well, we've sold 100. And like, what? <laughs> so that started Lucas Microphones. We ended up selling over 300 of that model, the CS1, then went to the CS4, which was inspired by the U47. Not clones, none of them. I don't like cloning. I didn't, all of these things weren't clones. I like the sonic family each thing is in and that you're inspired by it and, by it, and you do the best you can with things are, that are available today, the very best, even if you have to have it custom made at a Souter Transformer company or something like that. So uh, that sort of meant that's 20 plus years of, of uh, 20, 60, no, 30 years of Lucas engineering equipment out there. But yet you're very low key about it. Well, I don't have time and don't want to run a big kind of company. Yeah. I've had offers. Let us take the name, a big X company. We'll take your name and we'll give you this money. And, and I say, you know what? No, because... If I'm not in charge of it, I don't trust that it's going to be really good. No offense to anyone else. Yeah. But if it's going to have, and Lucas is my son's name. I named it after my son, Lucas. So I, if that name is on it, I want it to be the very best. And I'm not going to let anyone else make that decision. So um, we're going to start, and then Oliver unfortunately died. But we're going to, uh, with a, another great microphone guru genius, <clears throat> We're going to start making some other Lucas models this year. So good, good. Well, let me know. I, Absolutely, I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll help promote them for you. Definitely. Okay, so you're an obviously an analog guy from from all the way back. Are you still analog, or are you in the box at all? No, I'm I'm in whatever is in front of me. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I prefer certain things. I love the sound of tape itself. I love the sound of tubes and transformers and and I love the feeling of being at a great big console and like you're a 747 pilot or something. I love all that. But I've done recordings in, on DA88s in, in rehearsal places with you sure microphones and things that ended up being hit records. And as long as you can deal with it and do your very best and you can fix it later, fix it in the mix even if it's needed or whatever, I prefer to get everything as good sounding from instant to one as possible, of course. Makes your job easier later. But I don't really care. I, I, I miss things about analog, of course, certain things. But the digital capability is very hard to let go of. Yeah. When we would used to comp vocals compared to what it is now, oh, my God, <laughs> how yeah. much better is that? Like I mentioned, flying things in off of a off of an analog tape into another analog tape and having to hit stop and start and play everything at the right time. That's not as near as much fun as just cut, cutting and pasting and knowing exactly where it goes. So there's good with everything. I found that 
a lot of what went bad about so-called digititis, digital sound sounding bad at the very first when it got started was that people still used it like they did analog. They, in other words, they would, what you'd see on a VU meter into the red, just a little bit is kind of okay. You know, the yeah, bass drum yeah, yeah. hitting into the red or an occasional peak. And because analog would distort gracefully, it would add a little something to it. Digital is not that way, but people were still thinking of metering that way. And they would look at these built-in Pro Tools meters and if it hits the red, well, it's hitting the red, so what? But it is not so good. So I found out a little after some experimentation, if I would just take 12 dB down on everything as I tracked into Pro Tools, I called it um, yellow is the new red. Yeah. <laughs> I, would hit, I would hit yellow yeah. a little occasionally, but stay in the green. It all sounded much better and also let you use plugins without smashing into them, overloading them all the time. There are yeah. a lot of things involved, but that's that I started doing that and really employing as much tube and transformer outboard gear or mic pre's and EQs and compressors and various things as possible uh, into Pro Tools. I still do that, but I, I don't mind. I prefer to mix out of Pro Tools, track for track through a console when it's time to mix. I still prefer that because there's certain outboard pieces I'd love to patch in on everything. It's a bit more of a hassle in the box to do that. But I've mixed things in the box and nobody complained. Uh, it sounded good. I hear it later and go, wow, that's okay. That works good. So uh, again, whatever's right in front of me, I'm going to sit there and be happy with it and make it as good as I can make it. And uh, I'm not going to complain about a format. Do you have favorite plugins that you tend to use all the time? Oh, boy. There's so many now. They, You know, they weren't very good at first. I, I've set up my own mastering in about 92 because by that time I was in the Bahamas and it wasn't just one flight to New York to get with Bob or some whoever I was going to master with and one flight back and I could even do it without staying overnight and get right back to work. Not like that from the Bahamas uh, as, as easily. So, and plus Bob moved up to Maine and that wasn't as easy to get to. So for a lot of things, I set up my own mastering at Compass Point and started mastering a lot of my own stuff instead of sending it or taking it to other people. And I remember, because I had my, I had, and still, still my mastering lab is full of tube transformer, heavy iron analog gear that I master through. But uh, I remember I said, well, why not these plug-in EQs? Let's try them. So I put a plug-in EQ on and try it. And it was disgusting. I mean, I really couldn't stand it. The highs weren't sweet and nice, and it didn't did nothing that I was used to and liked in the analog world. So at that time, I dissed plugins, EQ plugins especially, and just said, "I'm not using those. That was crap." And then a few years later, I would try something else on a session. Hey, that that was not so bad. Now, improvement, improvement. Of course, we went to 24 bit, and then. Uh, Everybody improved a lot of things as it went along and uh, plugins got a lot better. And then now there are a lot of them I like. Uh, I think the fab filter plugins are very good. I use them as a brick wall limiter sometimes and as EQs. Yeah. My favorite too. Um, 
Ah, good. They're they're really solid. Yeah. Very good how they work. You you can see exactly what you're doing. And yeah. Although sometimes I'll pull the highs up a little and the the whole thing skews and I forget where I'm going. But anyway, um, I tried one the other day that I really liked. It's called SPL Iron. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've tried that, but it's it's a very nice sounding um, kind of old style compressor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the first I've really liked in that in that uh, that style. But uh, there's so many good ones out there. Um, I use some waves. Their H series uh, delays I've used, and their EQs, even their compressors, a little bit. Waves still have some good stuff. I mean, people put them down for a while. Yeah, some yeah. of their business practices, but there's good solid stuff. There are a lot of good companies now. Yeah, yeah. I hate to leave anyone out, so yeah. I should stop there. All right. Last question then, Terry. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way, or maybe somebody imparted to you? What I've always tried is my philosophy. Is we're talking a music session now. Be the first one there. Be the last one to leave. Be alert. That's just what I've always done. Be, I don't drink alcohol or do any drugs or, or even eat meat. I'm a crazy vegan and, and I work out and I just really try to stay mentally as top as I possibly can. You wouldn't know it from hearing me talk probably. but uh, So I've always felt, felt that's very important. But another thing, and it's, it sounds so simple, is say yes. I've been asked to, to do a lot of things that I really didn't know what to do. Uh, but people would say, well, could you do this for me? Like when MIDI got started, I'm like, what the heck is MIDI? I don't know. And I'd say, sure, I can do that. And I'd get a book or I'd go online if it was there yet. I'd do whatever and I'd learn it. And by the time it was time to do it, I had a pretty good knowledge of it. So I've always said yes, unless there's something distasteful. I mean, I wouldn't do that, but to good, solid, suggestive ideas. But business-wise, oh, I don't know. Half of what I've done or more is luck. So I'm not sure you want to take business advice from me. These days, I would say go back 20 years or no, go back 10 years and buy Bitcoin. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> You can find out more about Terry at terrymanning.com. That's Terry Manning, M-A-N-N-I-N-G, all one word, terrymanning.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Peace.